0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Mm.
1: Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with J. Blake Perkins, Associate Professor of History at Williams Baptist College. He is the author of Hillbilly Hellraisers Federal Power and Populist Defiance in the Ozarks, published by the University of Illinois Press. Blake Perkins, welcome to Working History.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Your book, Hillbilly Hellraisers, looks at the region commonly referred to as the Ozarks and, quote-unquote, populist politics there. You're a native of the Ozarks, so I thought to get us started, you could maybe tell us a little bit about the region, uh, where it is, for those listeners who might not know, what it's like, and how your personal experience of growing up on a farm in rural Arkansas influenced your insights and approach to the book. Okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the Ozarks is a region in uh, in Middle America. It's an upland region, uh, a mountainous region. Although geographers uh, describe it as an eroded plateau. Mm-hmm. Plateau. Um, but it's uh, it has a it has a lot of similarities with uh, Appalachia. Okay. Back east, and so uh, in fact, historical kinship of you know, early settlement patterns, migration patterns, and things like that. But there are a lot of similarities with uh, with Appalachia. And, a better known region, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but uh, but yes, I, I grew up on a, on a, uh, a fifth generation uh, family farm, lived in a very small, small community. Uh, the, the nearest small town uh, had a population of fewer than 80 people.
1: Oh, wow.
2: Uh, I went to a, a small public school district uh, nearby. In fact, uh, uh, after my senior year the schools it's, it's, it's had such a small enrollment that uh, it was required to consolidate with a neighboring school district. So it's a very small, partially populated uh, area. Uh, but yeah, I grew up grew up on a farm and uh, and uh, have come back and live here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, live in the same area where I where I grew up and teach at a at a small college uh, nearby. You know, growing up, obviously, uh, I was very interested in my my grandparents' lives and the stories they would tell, and, and it was very apparent to me very early that things change in rural, uh, rural America. And, uh, you know, some, sometimes the, the image or myth, you know, kind of that the, the rural societies are, are stagnant or stay the same the you know, kind of places of permanence mm-hmm. just really didn't, didn't set. I mean, my family has deep roots, uh, in, in the region, but uh, again, the, the small town, I mean, uh, the stories they would tell about this small town that, you know, having a movie theater, once upon a time, and, and several different stores. And, and by the time I was, was a kid growing up, I mean it was not really a ghost town, but practically mm-hmm. a ghost town. So anyway, it was, it was very apparent to me that, that things do change, and I think that that uh, that impression really influenced me early on because one of the key themes of the book is that that things change. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, but yeah, and and, and <clears throat> I started graduate school. You know, as we talk a little bit about politics. Uh, Started graduate school in the fall of, of, of 2008, and uh, so uh, I was really uh, interested in the just the very loud anti-Obama uh, political culture that was really growing and has, has grown even more, I think, since then. But uh, and so I was I was uh, sort of began to wonder uh, very early on there in my graduate studies if this you know has something to do with uh, maybe sour relationships between rural people rural regions like the Ozarks uh, in history mm-hmm. uh, with the, with the federal government mm-hmm. in history so my own background uh, definitely uh, influenced and, and shaped this book in many ways
1: and so your approach in some ways is a you know this idea really kind of a basic idea but in a in a lot of ways a, a transformative one when you think of of the way people think of rural areas that things change So this, in a lot of ways, then helps us or encourages us to rethink the stereotype of the Ozarks, right, of the moonshiners, of the assumptions about anti-government and don't tread on me culture there. Is that right?
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, again, that was sort of the impression I had going into this Mm -hmm. Uh, as I began to look more closely at it. uh, Those assumptions just weren't holding up of this this presumed kind of anti-government culture. Uh, supposedly rooted in, you know, the first uh, settlers, uh, white settlers who, who arrived to settle in the region, and, uh, and especially the, the the moonshiner image, I and mean, that was really entrenched in the region mm-hmm. uh, in the late 1800s early 1900s. I mean, publications like the New York Times were were, uh, were covering the sensational moonshiners versus the Feds mm-hmm. uh, kinds of kinds of stories in the region, and that really, I think, uh, helped to that so kind of entrenched that that image of these these backwoods people that supposedly are lost in the yester, in yesteryear and and want to be left alone mm-hmm. they don't want anything to do with government they just uh, you know, kind of don't tread on me kind of kind of ideas but as a, as a, as i said in this book shows it's far more complex than than that mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. okay so let's uh let's talk in more specifics then uh, about the book to start off could you give us uh, sort of a, a framework to understand what the economy of the Ozarks was like in or by the early 20th century? Um, what sorts of work were rural folks doing? How were they surviving in an economic sense, first of all?
2: OK. Yeah, they. Uh, this is a very important time uh, in, in, in the history of the region. This this is a this is a time uh, when most most uh, rural Ozarkers were small family farmers. hmm. They, uh, you know, and the definition of that is a little bit, a little bit vague. Uh, we need to, as rural historians, maybe do a little more work on that. Um, I don't think there's a, some have tried to use acreage and things mm-hmm. like that to try to, what is a small farmer? Right. But I don't, none of those really seem to, to capture it, I don't think. Uh, but, but I think probably the big thing is that when we think about family farmers, they, they did most of the labor, most of the work themselves mm-hmm. or, or as, as a family unit uh-huh maybe occasionally, uh, hiring some help, uh, maybe during a very, very busy time in the harvest season, or maybe neighbors might help one another out. If you know, One family got their, their crops in before the other one did. They might, you know, so there was some, some work swapping, mm-hmm. you know, I might say mm-hmm. going on, but but for the most part, the, the labor, the work, uh, the production of the farm was being done by, by the family, uh, not, not hired, you know, wage labor, things like that. Right. But, so that's what most, most, uh, uh, the majority were landowners; they they owned their farms. Again, these could range from 20 acres to a couple hundred acres mm-hmm. or so, but mm-hmm. uh, but they had that in common. Um, but it's an important time because uh, you know this is obviously the area, the era of industrialization, right. and uh, we see we see that impact of that in, in the region during this time. And, and so markets are becoming more and more important. Uh, outside markets, that is, national mm-hmm. and even international uh, agricultural markets. Mm-hmm. Railroads are penetrating the region. It's it's it, We start to see uh, early patterns that are going to become more and more apparent as we march on in through the 20th century of uh, that a farmer is not just a farmer. I mean, there are larger farmers, more highly capitalized farmers. There is a rising, I guess what we call middle class or, or really elite class, mm-hmm. emerging that... Kind of the middlemen in this economy, uh, they're they're doing quite well in, in this, and they want to see more of that mm-hmm. that pattern continuing. It's more of a what would become more of an agribusiness kind of industrial model, mm-hmm. and, and so it's it's becoming already at that at that point as early as the 1870s, 1880s, it's some of the signs of that are, are, are appearing, and uh, it becomes more and more difficult for these smaller farmers to really continue to you know make a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in this economy and so uh, thus some of the populist politics that we'll, that we'll talk about later but-
1: yeah we could actually maybe launch into that, but but real quickly um what you know what were these small farmers growing? Were they sort of okay, you know, the, yeah. you know the traditional kind of yeoman farmer where they're maybe growing corn or wheat as sort of a, a cash crop and then the rest is you know sustenance for the household or you know what are they doing and then as this transition is happening with the railroads penetrating and these sorts of things, do we see that transition that happens at a lot of places where the more market oriented the farms get, the less self-sustaining they are? Is that also happening here?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean that that idea of a truly purely subsistence farmer just really doesn't hold up mm-hmm. uh, all that well. I mean, there were only a handful of those, but most of these farmers are engaged in markets, and there are subregional variations of that. You know, uh, in the eastern part of the of the Arkansas Ozarks, and, and by the way, I should say, even though Missouri Ozarks are as big or a bigger part of the region, my book focuses on the Arkansas mm-hmm. Ozarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, So in the in the the eastern part of the Ozarks, which actually where I'm from, I mean these hill farmers were even growing cotton. Okay. So the cotton economy Uh had even, uh, although you don't see that further west you go, in northwest Arkansas, for instance, you don't see much cotton at all. They're growing things like wheat, grains, and and of course all all these farmers, uh, corn I guess was pretty pretty uniform in Mm -hmm. that most farmers grew corn. And then another thing I talk about, and I've got really a a whole chapter on it in the book, uh, livestock farming. Okay. And, uh, specifically, I'm talking about cattle, but but hogs as well. So uh, I mean, these are these are these are cash crops, and they're marketing these uh, these, live, these livestock, and cotton, or even marketing corn. And, and that's one of the things that I get into when I, in, in the chapter that I discuss uh, moonshiners mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. The markets there. Uh, but so uh, yeah, they're 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 very, they're market oriented. They're they're uh, hoping that these markets are going to help them sustain you know the family farm mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. and Able to live the American dream—that that truly was was the idea of the American dream for them to be able to uh, sustain and prosper as family farmers, as small. Homes.
1: Right. So let's talk a little bit then about, you know, the the regions, as you talk about it, a populist ethic um, among the the rural small landholders and and family farmers. And you talk about this group as working class, which uh, I found very interesting because that's a term often associated with industrial rather than rural work and workers. So could you talk a little bit about how and why you see these farm folk as working class, number one? And then number two, would they have identified themselves as such as part of a quote unquote working class or would they have seen themselves differently?
2: Yeah. uh, Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll answer uh, the last part of your question there. I guess first Mm -hmm. Uh, I tend to uh, view them as working class largely because I think they identified themselves Uh as working class. So um, yes, uh, this populist ethic that, uh, that I talk about in the book, I mean we see thousands of these small family farmers especially in the 1880s, we can see it in the Ozarks, especially strong there, joining uh, these uh, farmers' unions, uh, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, these organizations, uh, one of the most uh, prolific in Northwestern Arkansas was called the Brothers of Freedom. Mm, okay, it, It's a, pre, a predecessor to the Farmers' Alliance. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Farmers' Alliance is kind of a predecessor of the what eventually became the third-party populist movement there in the 1890s. But uh, this Brothers of Freedom, I mean, if you look at the I mean, they they uh, they claimed uh, somewhere between by by the middle 1880s they claimed between 30 and 40,000 uh, people and that was, that was a significant uh, slice of the population there so this is a very large organization and if you look at the language of this this organization others like it i mean they're talking about the i mean they're deeply concerned about the rise of economic inequality uh, the rise of a privileged Elite, moneyed class, and they're talking about how that money class is oppressing, what they call the laboring masses, and so they identified identify themselves as as laborers mm-hmm. and as part of the laboring masses, and uh, and then we see this even after the so-called you know the third party movement had fizzled out, uh, even with the farmers union in the early early nineteen hundreds, the uh, national organization, but it continued to be, I mean, this was the largest uh, interest group. Uh, in 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 the state of Arkansas, mm-hmm. and so there were lots of these farmers, there, and they're they're talking about the same things.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's part of uh, aggressive regulations, progressive taxation, things like that. But, but yeah, they're they're uh, they're definitely uh, identifying themselves as, as working people. And back to the late 1800s, uh, the Bro- brothers of freedom, that group uh, merged with a another similar group. Uh, and then eventually became the Farmers Alliance, but uh, they actually worked together uh, with the small Knights of Labor in Arkansas, mm-hmm. that, uh, the, uh, especially in the 1888 gubernatorial election and some of the congressional races there. Um, they forged a, they they called themselves such a, a working class coalition there, and came as close as as, as ever to, to knocking off the Democratic establishment in Arkansas. Mm-hmm pretty nasty election but anyway uh again uh, they they identified and worked with even worked with urban working class so they, they saw themselves as, as working people and uh they, they saw their their struggles uh as small farmers and the difficulties of trying to make a living as part of this this broader uh, uh struggle of, of the late 1800s early 1900s this vast inequality that's growing here and again much like urban urban workers they Decided oftentimes to uh, to band together collectively to, to see if they couldn't get something done, mm-hmm. and change.
1: Mm-hmm. Fast forwarding just a bit, but not too much, with the New Deal, residents of the Ozarks, like millions across the nation, will begin to experience and feel the reach of the federal government in new ways. But before we talk about the New Deal, um, you do quite a lot of work, kind of leading up to that to try to show how Ozarkers experienced and interacted with the government, both on local and federal levels before the 1930s. And what I'm hoping you can do for us is sort of in broad brushstrokes, talk about this, you know, this interaction with government, number one. Um, And then number two, you give a couple of of sort of poignant examples of this. Number one, draft resistance and anti-militarism during World War One, and then also a tick eradication program by the USDA. So could you, first of all, talk about that, you know, broadly speaking, interactions with government, and I'm, you know, sort of using that term very loosely, and then give us those examples and talk a little bit about how those informed your, your analysis and led you to this conclusion that, uh, you know, these weren't simply knee-jerk reactions of anti-government culture.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this populist ethic that we Talking about, I mean, uh, it saw a crucial role for government. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, these these uh, populists uh, believe that the that government uh, was really the the power of the people. Mm-hmm. They, they said that mm-hmm. they, they equated government with with the people, and, you know, and uh, they believe that it it needed to play a role <laughs> in regulating and even redistributing uh, the Economy and so forth, uh, to ensure that ordinary working people uh, still had a fair chance and things like that. So, so, so they they did have this this view that the, the government ought to be playing a role. At the same time, the uh, programs that began to be implemented as the modern state developed, and as the federal government began to be felt more and more in the early 1900s and so on. These were usually pretty raw experiences for many rural uh, rural Ozarkers. Mm-hmm. These programs were often funneled through uh, local elites, mm-hmm. and often uh, these local elites had their own agendas, had their own visions for what uh, the Ozarks should, should be, and uh, wanted to use that power and those resources to achieve that instead of the, the kinds of reforms that Working class people were, were wanting, and uh, so yeah, we see this uh, over and over again. This is a pattern that I, that I that I saw emerge as I looked at these various case studies
3: mm-hmm.
2: from the from the standoff standoff between moonshiners moon and, and the Feds and so forth, to uh, rural draft resistance during World War One, uh, to some of these early USDA farm programs and so forth. Uh, these these programs that are intended to, to be progressive, right, to, to, to help farmers and help rural communities often help those uh, who already hold more power, mm-hmm. uh, those who already are doing fairly well by regional standards, uh, they tend to help them uh, and oftentimes they hurt uh, the, the poor uh, smallholders mm-hmm. in, in the backcountry. For instance, the the uh, tick eradication program. Uh, this was a program uh, developed to uh, that were for for the cattle, for uh, cattle farmers mm-hmm. um, by the USDA uh, to eradicate. The idea was to eradicate tick fever, mm-hmm. uh, which is a biological disease that was problematic for the cattle industry and so forth. We see this uh, pattern really there because the ones who were wanting that program and the ones who oversaw that. Really implemented on the ground and used um, even police force to to carry it out were the wealthier farmers who were importing purebred livestock, and these purebred cattle were the ones that were vulnerable to mm-hmm. the disease. Okay, any of these small small backcountry farmers, poorer farmers, their cattle were these uh, you know, these native or often called scrub breeds mm-hmm. that had been in the in the region for generations and they had developed over time kind of immunity to this disease so it wasn't really seemed to be it didn't didn't seem to be affecting them that much but nevertheless this program was sold as a as a, as a program that will help all mm-hmm. all farmers mm-hmm. it'll raise all boats in other words and yet the uh you know, the tax burden for that ended up being it was a, basically a flat tax enacted to, to help fund it uh, uh, this did not go over well mm-hmm. among uh, small small holders and, and they viewed it as uh, something Gotten up, buying for rich and well-to-do farmers really opposed it from that from that ankle uh, throughout that. You asked about uh, draft resistance. During mm-hmm. World war I. This is often a, a forgotten story in rural America. Uh, there's been more work done on that. Jeanette Keith's book, uh, "Rich Man's War, Poor Man's Fight," has shed a lot of important light on rural draft resistance in the in the, in the South. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, this was not a popular war, and it was often opposed and, and later resisted the draft, especially resisted as these small farmers saw it as a scheme gotten up by wealthy interests to make more money. And then they, you know, they were going to have to do the fighting. Right. So that was a common theme over and over again. Religion sometimes played a role in that as well. A lot of these smaller backcountry country churches, uh, were deeply opposed to the war theologically, uh, but, but also again, uh, idea that this is the unfair, you know, rich man's war, poor man's fight kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So, Mm -hmm.
1: As we or, you know, sort of as as they, I should say, moved into the era of the New Deal, right, and you have this massive expansion of federal programs being introduced into the Ozarks, among, you know, many other places. Do you see do you still see the attitudes towards these programs being viewed through this lens of? Class conflict in some ways, or you know, what was happening? Were the were the attitudes changing? Were they kind of carrying over, or what was going on there?
2: Yeah, uh, well, there may have been some. There may have been some <clears throat> rural folks who you know had just simply been burned too much mm-hmm. by previous programs that they, they now saw no role for government. But I, I thought it was somewhat remarkable as I read uh, into the sources here: uh, letters to the editor and newspapers and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, letters to governors and. and during the early, you know, the great early depression mm-hmm. era, as the pre- depression set in. Just how how much hope there was among these many of these rural people—a uh, hope that government could step in and do something—and mm-hmm. so uh, I, I found uh, by far uh, far more support for the New Deal uh, than opposition, and and in fact, in some of the part now the, the the region as the state as a whole was. Largely democratic, you know, as part mm-hmm. of the Solid South. Mm-hmm. But there were pockets. There were a couple of counties, especially Searcy and Newton counties, northwest Arkansas, that, uh, going all the way back to the, to the Civil War, had uh, had been Republican strongholds. And even there, we see uh, this interesting dynamic: uh, people deciding to vote for for FDR, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, other other New Dealers and. See it again. Letters to the editor, editorial positions in those local papers, uh, support general general support for at least the ideas of, of the New Deal and the idea of as one of the one of the papers I remember said something to the effect that we need to corral the bulls of Wall Street mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that appeared over, and over again as the New Deal programs were implemented. Though we began to see some of the same stories that we'd had seen prior to the New Deal. Mm-hmm. In many of the New Deal programs, farm programs and such, were funneled through local local elites, local political elites, and uh, so so we uh, there were some farmers organizations that were beginning to complain about the uneven distribution of farm subsidies and, and the funds and so forth mm-hmm. of uh, from the farm programs and how they were benefiting again those who needed it uh, least. Mm-hmm. So we began to see some of that. But, but overall, I, I looked at uh, some oral history interviews as well, and, and the memory of the New Deal was, was quite positive uh, from those oral histories that I looked at. And overall, I would say the New Deal and the idea of, you know, of the state there and what it was trying to do uh, seemed to be supported uh, more than opposed mm-hmm. by most, most of those rural people in the Ebzarks.
1: So what sorts of transitions then do we see in the region from depression through New Deal, through the end of World War II and then into the post-war years? How does the economic development in the Ozarks proceed and what are the attitudes towards government like at this point? Do they change? Do they stay sort of the same with these tensions between local and federal? Uh, What's happening there?
2: I think there's still there's still hope. Coming out of uh, World War II, I start one chapter there with a letter uh, that I found of a woman who's a uh, very small farm community who's writing to the governor. And uh, clearly she has these expectations that government has a responsibility mm-hmm. to step in and, and help lift families in her community, for help provide economic opportunities and so forth. We began to see that, going back to the New Deal, these patterns uh, again emerging where these federal resources and power are, are largely put into the hands of these local elites, who then use them for their own, you know, kind of agendas, industrial agribusiness type of agendas, and and so what we see one of the big legacies of kind of the New Deal were the, the creation of these large hydroelectric dams mm-hmm. and lakes mm-hmm. in, in the region, and that was, I mean, these were obviously very very expensive. Uh, Government projects here. I mean, they put a lot of people to work, mm-hmm. um, and and so for that, I mean, for that reason, this is these were desperate times. Um, they began building the first one, uh, North Fork Dam, in the early '40s, and so many many rural people were obviously very happy to have extra work opportunities and so forth. But the idea behind these dams was that you know once we develop these dams, industry will start coming in. The idea is it'll lift all boats. Mm-hmm. And it'll help help farmers, the non-farm work industry will come in, uh, agriculture will get more efficient and all of that. Uh, that. That idea continues after after World War II, through and after World War II. The idea that um, that's the solution mm-hmm. to, to helping rural people is to bring in industry, mm-hmm. to uh, promote agribusiness, more efficient uh, agribusiness models as opposed to the traditional Small family farm, and so uh, that's the solution mm-hmm. offered by both conservatives and liberals uh, through uh, through the 1950s and 60s. And, uh, new programs were developed uh, as we moved on into the uh, Kennedy and Johnson years. Uh, there was uh, some some of the listeners may may be aware of the Appalachian Regional Commission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a there were actually a few other regional commissions. One of them was the Ozarks Regional Commission. So that got underway it was operated differently than, than the Appalachian Regional Commission. But the idea there is to use federal resources to pump money into these rural economies mm-hmm. to promote industrial business growth and so forth. But and and, and, and they did, but and uh, we start to see some parts of the region, growth centers or larger towns mm-hmm. get bigger, their populations begin to swell, grow bigger grow more affluent and so forth but uh actually seems to hasten the deterioration of smaller rural communities mm-hmm. mm-hmm. is a small family farmer are are numbered they're, uh, they're pretty much over uh, by the late 60s anyway it didn't it did not that that type of uh, solution did not achieve the promises that, that that were made there Mm -hmm. and led to a lot of disappointment and in some cases resentment. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so was there any sort of TVA style, Tennessee Valley authority style, big planning? Was that also going on in the Ozarks? I mean, it sounds kind of like a similar thing. And then ultimately as this plays out, you have your winners and your losers in the game, right? So is that, that phenomena is also then happening, you know, in Arkansas and not just sort of further South. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, and going back into the to the New Deal there uh, the original bill submitted for that pilot project that uh, uh, Northportk Dam mm-hmm. uh, was actually uh, it called for what it called the White River Authority okay. it was modeled on the TVA uh, congressman Clyde Ellis uh, proposed that and uh, and so yeah that was the that was the idea initially mm-hmm. although uh, well there was a very large uh, power company in Arkansas called Arkansas Power & Light that uh, strongly opposed that and uh, really had to be won over uh, before before that the details of that legislation, especially the hydroelectric part of that, it uh, could, could be passed. But in doing all of that, uh, it was interesting that uh, I found a letter that uh, Clyde Ellis, the congressman, submitted that had written to an attorney in St. Louis, I believe, but basically saying, well, the White River Authority idea is just basically a political tactic mm-hmm. to, to get it through. if we can get it without a you know begin this kind of government planning organization i'm all for it and that's essentially mm-hmm. what they got the u.s army corps of engineers undertook these projects and uh, so we didn't really see the kind of more managed system mm-hmm. tba mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's all it's all born out of that that same yeah, idea
1: you. yeah yeah mm-hmm. Moving forward a bit, you started to kind of touch on the Kennedy years, and then moving into the war on poverty in the 1960s. This you identify as an important turning point for residents of the Ozarks uh, in, you know, in the history of relationship with government and government resistance. Why do you see this as a moment of, as you call it, quote unquote, new Ozarks defiance? And why is that important, given what came before?
2: yeah well, so as I undertook this project I've, i mean my radar was up as I was looking over this long period of time I was looking for conflicts with government mm-hmm. right so I was looking for instances of resistance and, uh, and uh, so I, I began to see in the world poverty uh, naturally some resistance there and but I began to notice that this is different this is a different kind of resistance mm-hmm. than i that I was looking at you know uh, when I was talking about the the moonshiners and the revenuers and all that, and, and the early opposition to some of the federal farm programs, th- that kind of thing. Uh, this is complaints against the war on poverty are coming from primarily uh, regional political and business elites. Okay. This time, not not your working class people. Again, I think this is a reflection of the transformations that have occurred by that time. Uh, the rise of a, a light industry. Tourism was important, increasingly important part of the regional economy and agribusiness. Again, all that depended on low-wage, non-unionized labor. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there was a this major outcry, especially especially when uh, these regional political elites realized that poverty programs were not going to be funneled through their hands mm-hmm. as as most federal programs had in the past. And so they really began to kick up. About that, it's interesting to see some of the early, you know, when the announcements were made about the war on poverty, and so for some of the political uh, elites in the region, it did a complete flop within a few weeks after they realized how these programs are going to work, mm-hmm. they're, they're suddenly against it, while well, they had been supportive of it before. But uh, yeah, so this is a uh, this is a different kind of defiance, as I argue, and it's a different it's a different economy, largely. And so they are resisting the war on poverty. Now, as a, as they try to defend this, what I call new Ozarks economy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. id industry, agribusiness, tourism, retail kind of, lo- but the key low wage, mm-hmm. non-union kind of, kind of economy that they depend on. So, uh, it's a different kind of defiance. And again as I argue, as I finish the book, this is the this is this is more akin to the anti-government sentiments that seem to be so predominant in the region today Mm -hmm. it's kind of the roots of that certainly more more akin to that than than the prior working class uh, resistance that I discussed in earlier parts of the book
1: Mm -hmm. so to round us out as we sort of fast forward to today to more modern times how do you see your book, Hillbilly Hellraisers, contributing to the conversation, the ongoing national discussions and to a better understanding about what have been referred to as, quote unquote, Trump voters, um, which are often discussed as, you know, economically disenfranchised white uh, members of a disappearing middle or working class? How, how is this, you know, helping us better understand that?
2: Yeah, well, uh, Trump Trump did very very well in in the Ozarks. He, uh, I was shortly after the election. I, I was uh, corresponding with Brooks Blevins, a historian of the Ozarks, and he was had been collecting some uh, political data, in the region's history. But I believe it was the most lopsided presidential election since since Buchanan in eighteen fifty six. So, uh, but he, yeah, so Trump was, was immensely popular in the Ozarks. So it seems, of course. You get into well, how much of that was Trump's popularity and how much of it was animosity toward Hillary Clinton? Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, I mean, uh, of course, I was here uh, during the during the election and uh, doing some, some traveling in the region throughout the region uh, leading up to November, and I was amazed at the, the number of yard signs I would see you know, Trump hints. So, but but I, I uh, as far as these national conversations uh, go. There's been a lot of discussion of J.D. Vance's uh, "Hillbilly Elegy" right. recently in the media and so forth, and it seems to be being billed as the the go-to book mm-hmm. for understanding mm-hmm. the Trump voter. Uh, I have my qualms uh, with uh, Vance's uh, portrayal. I mean, it's 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 uh it's largely a cultural expan- explanation. It seems uh, kind of blaming the the culture, uh, rural working class culture. There, you know, he talks about. Culture of entitlement, and I'm the victim kind mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. What I uh, seem to observe is <clears throat> in, during the elections is, is that the loudest supporters from tended to be uh, the most comfortable, uh, the most uh, prosperous. Uh, they tended to be relatively well-to-do agribusiness owners or own some kind of a, of a business or something like that. Uh, so they're, they're not not as uh, they're undoubtedly a lot of working class. Wasn't really a lot of working class support, but but uh, but my point is, I think the last part of my book, Hillbilly Hellraisers and the the discussion of this transformation of economy and and the roots of that new Ozarks politics of defiance, mm-hmm. uh, I think are important uh, to understand there because I, I see that as a can the, the support enthusiasm for Trump more as a continuation of that same kinds of op- opposition that we saw to the war on poverty mm-hmm. in the 1960s mm-hmm. be led by this new Ozarks uh, business elite political elite uh, more so than than working class so I'm all, I'm always kind of grimaced when I hear the discussions of the, the white working class as mm-hmm. Trump's base mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a lot of support there but, but that's not, I, I don't see that as the uh, the main base uh, there's there's a lot we'll obviously be trying to unravel this as historians for a long time but mm-hmm. but i but i do think again the last part of part of the book uh, is important to, to think about as scholars and so forth to to, to think about how rural america has changed mm-hmm. how different how so very different it is and has become really in the last 50 years or so again back to the old image of the rural rural america is this of permanence. Mm-hmm.
3: It's, it's
2: always the same. That that uh, I think we need to understand that it's not right. It's, it's constantly in flux. It's constantly changing. So.
1: Well, you've given us a, a lot to a lot to think about, and some great um, historical context uh, with which to do that. So, Blake Perkins, uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History.
2: Thank you, Beth. I, pr- I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks again to Jay Blake Perkins, author of Hillbilly Hellraisers, Federal Power and Populist Defiance in the Ozarks, published by the University of Illinois Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.